Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Jameson Ross. Dr. Ross received his PhD from Durham University, and he is the author of Bonhoeffer as Biblical Interpreter, Reading Scripture in 1930s Germany. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Corey. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Um, as someone who has done a PhD in the UK, I'm, I'm moving next Friday to the UK to, to start mine full time. Um, how was that experience in Durham? Uh, it was incredible. Um, my, my wife and two of our children uh, went over in the fall of 2016. So September 2016, just a few months before some things happened in the United States uh, that made for some interesting interactions with some British folk. Oh, uh, but um, yeah, we, uh, we loved it. We are two plus years after being back now, just two years and whatever, four months or something. And I, it's a daily conversation uh, the points of grief, um, the continued sense of, of wanting to be in that context, not just to re sort of presentate the moment, all of the distinctive elements of that, but uh, several aspects of life in the UK for us as a culture, um, politically sort of church state relationships, um, the pace of life, uh, the way that we sort of lived there. Uh, we have we're having a very difficult time mm. finding those rhythms uh, in America. Um, and, you know, some of the small things like being able to walk to the grocery store, um, getting into a car to do everything here in the far western suburbs of Chicago, where we're located, uh, is dehumanizing. And so the the opportunity to kind of pull several aspects of life together uh, as a family uh, was a real joy in the UK. So anyway, yeah, Durham was was lovely. Uh, we loved being there. We're sad we're not now. <laughs> uh, that is the sentiment I get from basically any UK PhD that I've asked that question, especially mm -hmm. American people who went over, um, that they've just had like such a wonderful experience. I've been trying to pitch it to my, my daughters. I have twin four-year-olds and um, we, uh, for the listener, I'm currently in an Airbnb right now because I'm sort of in the, the transition of the moving phase. So we left our, our apartment yesterday and there were lots of tears about, you know, just like, I love this house, this apartment. And it's like, you know, we're, we're taking a lot of the things. So it's not like we're leaving a bunch of their things behind, but it's, you know, just trying to pitch it to them. They always make my wife uh, uh, speak in a British accent and they call it their fancy voice, her fancy voice. Um, <laughs> and when I showed them a picture of, uh, of the University of Aberdeen, they said, oh, it's a castle. Um, so they are... I always say they're excited to go in a place where everyone speaks fancy and daddy goes to Jesus school in a castle. That's how they describe it. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, we're oh, looking forward great. to it. Well, uh, well, you went over there for a PhD, um, obviously, um, yep. on Bonhoeffer. So where did that start for you? How did that start? Uh, how did you discover Bonhoeffer and what was the process from discovering him to uh, doing a PhD on him? I was um, exposed, I think, to Bonhoeffer probably in my sort of adolescent years, kind of growing up. You know, my, my dad, I think, if I remember correctly, had a couple of Bonhoeffer books kind of on the shelf. And I remember seeing some of them in his library, never read any of them that I can recall. Um, my initial uh, foray, I mean, I, you know, you hear him in sermons here and there in a church context or some, you know, someone will reference him in some kind of, so I was aware at least of Bonhoeffer. Um, and I think though, the first time that I came into contact with anything that sort of moved me in the direction of what would eventually be my PhD was reading Eric Metaxas's biography of, of Bonhoeffer. I know that gets some, some flack here on the podcast uh, by some folks uh, and with good reason. I, I don't disagree with it, but it was an important launch pad for me. Uh, I still, with great reservation and noting the qualifications, recommend it here and there to people who have no uh, prior knowledge of Bonhoeffer as a way to kind of initiate them to sort of the broader contours of his life story. Cause it's a, it's a, it's an interesting narrative. It's an interesting read and it's much more interesting than handing them Beitka or something. You know, mm -hmm. there are some other options, obviously, uh, but I find, I find Metaxas 
to still be a helpful thing for some people on that stage, like it was for me. I don't want to erase that bit of my history just because of the problems. Sure. Um, so that was, I think, the initial sort of moment of getting excited about the thought of working, you know, reading Bonhoeffer, doing some stuff with him. Um, I ended up writing a short blog post kind of thing for, for somebody who invited me to on Metaxas's biography. And that was a helpful way to kind of consolidate some of my thinking. Um, I, I think at that point I snagged a book. So I was a, a pastor, a student ministries pastor at a church at the time. Um, and a lot of what we were doing was helping students read the scriptures, trying to help them to think about what the Bible was and how to read it. And one of the things that I think I picked up by osmosis in my evangelical background uh, as a kid and whatever was that this Bonhoeffer guy read the Bible like we did. Uh, and so while I'm trying to figure out how to help students think about how to read the Bible, what the Bible is, et cetera, as I'm becoming more interested in this guy's life story and the Bible plays a prominent role in it, um, I started to want to read stuff that he wrote about the Bible in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I got some of these meditations on Psalm 119 or um, a text where he's sort of thinking about how do you help people in the context of the Fink and Valdez Seminary to, to meditate on scripture. And so uh, certain elements of the volumes in the later, you know, 14, 15 on theological interpretation, illegal seminary interpretation, whatever, all that stuff. Um, I found all those really interesting as uh, points of contact with the kind of work that I was doing as a pastor. Um, I also went to the Wheaton Theology Conference in 2012, was, was devoted to Bonhoeffer. It became a volume called Bonhoeffer, Christ and Culture. Uh, several of the people in that you know, volume were speaking at the conference, were all really interesting folks, had some conversations with some of them that kind of started the academic side of my interest, kind of the, the introduction to this whole world of folks who um, who could be really helpful in thinking about some of these issues. I was particularly interested in Phil Ziegler's uh, piece as he presented it there at the conference. But then when it came out in the, in the published volume, I read it very carefully on Bonhoeffer as a theologian of the word of God. That was a significant piece uh, for kind of launching my interest academically. Eventually did a master's degree, came across a bunch of stuff in that context uh, where I was kind of doing my master's degree. It was actually an exegesis. So I'm, I'm a trained exegete, not a trained theologian prior to my PhD. Uh, and that will make some sense of why the book is the way that it is, the way that I wrote it. Um, and so the, the interest I had alongside my exegesis was this sort of theological work. So I started into a master's degree in theology and started really pursuing Bonhoeffer in that context um, and got very excited about the, the kind of stuff he was doing with the Bible. And really that was the formation of my key kind of research question, which was based out of my church context. Um, if in fact, as people say, Bonhoeffer reads the Bible like us, um, how could that possibly be? Um, I was reading all sorts of stuff in what he was writing that just felt like, yeah, kind of like there's a way in which what you're saying has resonance in like the fact that he reads the Bible as an individual, so to speak, on occasion uh, and like thinks that it has relevance in some way, shape or form, direct application to something he's going to do in uh, the fact that he meditates on it he says, so like, that's a connection point, maybe depending on what we mean, yeah. you know? So it's like that kind of process of, is it possible that a person trained in the way he was trained, a person brought up in the context he was brought up, the per a person facing the things that we, you know, know that he faced, how is it that this way of reading the Bible in my context could be mirrored there? There seemed to be some significant disparities. And in the context of that sort of formation of that question, um, I was I was getting more acquainted with sort of Bardian studies, reading Bart as well, and just felt like um, if there's an assimilation here, then there's going to be a, the problems that people have with Bart in my tradition are not problems they have with Bonhoeffer, and there seemed to be a problem with this. Um, and so that was it was those kinds of aspects of dissonance that I think propelled much of the interest eventually deciding I just, I needed to do a PhD to kind of answer those questions along with a host of others that I had just myself about, about doctrine of scripture stuff, about interpretation, all of that stuff was kind of banging around with, with Bonhoeffer in the background and formed the eventual question of my thesis. Oh, I really love what you said about the Bonhoeffer and Bart connection about how uh, <laughs> the things that we, that sort of 
maybe conservative evangelicalism doesn't like about Bart, they uh, don't apply to Bonhoeffer and there seems to be some sort of, you know, disconnection there. And yeah, that's been on my mind a lot <laughs> as I've been thinking about what I'm writing. I, I really loved your book. I'll, I'll say that right away. I mean, I think I've told you this in the email, but it might be the most unique Bonhoeffer book I've read. Um, I, I see a lot of, I read a lot of these books, obviously for these podcasts and I see lots of great commentary on Bonhoeffer's sort of interpretation, not necessarily as like, this is the goal of the book or whatever, but like, oh, Bonhoeffer says this, therefore this um, in, in the books that I'm reading. But yours is definitely the closest reading of Bonhoeffer's when, while Bonhoeffer is interpreting scripture, sort of like the moves that he's making, the connections he's making. Um, I found it really fascinating. Um, so yeah, let, let's get into it. I, I love hearing a little bit about the, the Bonhoeffer reads the Bible just like me. Um, I found that like, that was my experience getting into Bonhoeffer studies is like, okay, I, I don't even understand what I'm doing here. You know, it's, it's so foreign to me. So I'm excited. I, I was really excited when I read even the title of your book as this might be a, like a great, great way to introduce people who are new to Bonhoeffer studies. Like, okay, well, here's where, you know, square one, we're starting here. This is how we read his Bible. Therefore all the other things, you know? Mm. So you start your book um, and you mainly cover in that first chapter, Bonhoeffer's paper from uh, his time in seminary uh, or at university on Bonhoeffer's uh, pneumatological interpretation of scripture. So I'm wondering if we could start there and kind of set the stage for the listeners um, who are, I guess, new to Bonhoeffer. A, what is that paper about? And then um, what does it indicate about his approach to scripture? Yeah, the paper is is written in 1925. So Bonhoeffer is 19 years old. Uh, he's at Berlin University. Um, he is young. Uh, he is um, very, very intelligent, it must be said, but he's also a bit overconfident. Uh, and so the paper is a massive one in terms of its uh, aim. Um, he, he wants to do a lot in it, uh, which is somehow find a way to talk about the relationship between scripture and revelation, but to do that by chronicling all sorts of people for centuries, you know, lo long periods of time who've just done it wrong and they get you know, short shrift, like maybe a sentence. And that's a, it's a sort of throwaway line on an entire group of people who've been reading the Bible for a very long time. Uh, very characteristic in some ways of Bonhoeffer's engagement with history. Um, and it, he's not often very good at this, uh, or at least it's not really his interest. And that's, I think that's probably the more important way to say it. Um, so he, he's attempting in the paper to develop a way of thinking about the relationship between revelation and scripture, uh, and to do that for the sake, importantly, of dogmatics as a discipline, but also preaching, uh, the church's life. Uh, so at 19 years old, as a, you know, not a churchgoer himself, um, he is very concerned as a good Lutheran sort of culturally would be, as a good aristocratic Lutheran culturally would be in sort of the church in relationship to the rest of the world. Uh, and he wants to figure out kind of what does it look like to put the Bible in a place of centrality, but not necessarily suggest that that means that's the whole one has to say, all of what one has to say about Revelation. Um, and so revelation is really the thing he's after. Now, this is very influenced by this stage, uh, some reading he's doing on Bart, but in it's also significantly uh, influenced by the context. He's in Berlin University and he's uh, neighborhood friends with Adolf von Harnack. Uh, he's in a systematic theology seminar with Reinhold Zeberg. Uh, and that's who he writes the paper for. In fact, the paper is a bit of a failure in terms of Bonhoeffer's overall grade for the paper. It's the worst one he gets at the whole time he's in Berlin University, in part because of what I've mentioned earlier, he bites off way more than he can chew. He doesn't do a very good job of analyzing some of the things that he's suggesting he will, but also because he's engaging with Bart in a way that is just annoying, frustrating uh, to Zeiberg. Uh, this is a person with whom people don't want to have anything to do at Berlin University. Um, and so the Bart, Bart Harnack debate has gone on in the papers. Uh, this is not a person that uh, is rising star in some respects, Bonhoeffer in the Berlin University uh, should associate with. So 
um, I think it's taken, it seems as though he's making, he's doing some shortcuts uh, on being able to connect revelation to God directly instead of grounding it in historical reality in the way that the Berlin University sort of way of being their paradigm would have suggested. Uh, Bonhoeffer is though sitting very carefully, I think, even brashly as it is, he's sitting carefully between these two different spaces, attempting not just a via media, but just attempting to kind of inhabit both of them well. Um, not to suggest there is a third way, but actually to recognize the tensions and allow them to remain. So history is a big pole, one of the poles of what he's trying to do in the, in the, in the, uh, the paper. He's trying to carve out a space for why history matters in doing interpretation. So he's a historical critic in the sense that he's trained in historical criticism. There's absolutely no sense in which Bonhoeffer thinks this is a bad thing. Uh, this is a given uh, this is what it means to do biblical studies. This is what it means to do ancient biblical work. If you're going to read a Bible, you're going to need to be a historical critic in some way, shape, or form unto some end. And that's really what the point is. So the other pole is the theological edge or the revelation edge. And it's in the relationship of these two things, uh, revelation in scripture, theology and history, spirit and interpreter. These are the poles that he's kind of developing the tensions between in a very dialectical fashion that one would expect. Um, and he comes out of the paper with a way of, of basically envisaging the future of his own interpretation uh, is the way I read it, at least, that it's the beginning point of the future of his way of reading the Bible, uh, wherein history will play a significant role, as in form criticism, textual criticism, the normal kinds of things one does reading ancient texts, because one has to. It's a different language. It's a different time period. All of that stuff needs to be employed, but it's to the end of theological reflection, actually to the end, more importantly, not just reflection, but preaching, uh, which is the sort of goal. So he ends the paper very, very, very helpfully, in my view, with come creator spirit is the sort of call. It's a pneumatological interpretation of scripture that matters because the spirit is the one who is establishing the humanity of the interpreter. The spirit is the one who connects the dots between the inspired text and the inspired reader of the text. Inspiration is not a textual deposit. It's the thing that sits between uh, writer and reader as the spirit unites them in this act. Uh, and this is also the thing that happens in the context of the preaching. That's inspiration all over again, because this is infused by the spirit's work in all of these spaces is a very, very, um, comprehensive vision for what the way that God by the spirit is at work in the act of reading, writing the whole of what makes scripture scripture. Wow. That's great. Um, you mentioned earlier, um, some of the, the connecting points between, I guess, lis maybe listeners to this podcast and Bonhoeffer's reading or, or his approach to scripture. Meditation is important. This, this book somehow applies to me, you know, like some very baseline things. What given that paper, um, and that understanding of Bonhoeffer's pneumatological interpretation, what might be, I guess, different or foreign to us in 2021 um, when we approach our Bibles? What, what, what did Bonhoeffer have in his head that might be different than ours? Yeah, that's, I think that's a good question. Um, I think in some ways, I want to say there are some things that would be connection points or links, but it, I think I really want to just say not, not like almost nothing. Uh, it's so different, um, in, in part, the historical critical bit, uh, just is, makes for a very different experience of reading. Um, one in, I suppose, a pretty traditional in our context way of reading scripture. And by our context, at least me, me and you share this sort of evangelical background, sure. um, of different stripes, of course, qualifications endlessly, but, um, I think that there's a there's a move to kind of honor the particularity of the text in front of you to care about doing quote unquote grammatical historical exegesis. But a lot of that is is not having a whole lot to do with historical critical matters. In fact, it's to screen those things out as a devoted reader of the Bible, a person who takes it seriously as God's word is the kind of person who might want to do the work of situating this contextually, of recognizing those things, but not necessarily of allowing that the historical bits and pieces to kind of really make a difference in the way that Bonhoeffer does. Um, and the way that, as I demonstrate, I think in sort of chapter after chapter, um, the way that those things sort of poke out and make the text awkward, uh, make the text very strange. So the alien features of the text remain, I think, alien 
for Bonhoeffer in a way that we assimilate them, assuming that we have all of what we need already to hand uh, in reading it. Um, in addition, most of the kinds of folks from our tradition, again, broad sweeping claims, uh, read revelation and scripture as coterminous, uh, as equal. So the Bible is revelation. This is the exact thing that Bonhoeffer wants to disabuse um, anyone of in this paper, which of course this paper is written for an academic systematic theology seminar. It's not actually disabusing anybody of anything. It's written for Zayberg in a certain mm -hmm. kind of sense, but it's Bonhoeffer working out some of his thinking. And as such, um, he, he really is striving to disconnect those two things. Scripture is involved as one element of a constellation of elements in the process of by which God makes himself known. It is not the sole way that God makes himself known. Um, it's, it's very important. It's central. It's like, you don't get away with not dealing with the Bible. You can't accuse Bonhoeffer of that kind of thing. Uh, but he wants to, he wants to disconnect those two things. He wants to keep them in relation, but he doesn't want to specify that relation too closely uh, which is the error he sees all over the place is that there's a desire to make those things somehow the same thing. And that's a real problem, um, mainly because it just denudes in some respect, though the creature could never denude God of anything, but it denudes God of the ability to really speak and confront uh, in an over against sort of way. Um, so those are at least some of the way I, I think there's very little actually that's similar uh, between the way that we, engage it other than it's central. And that would be a claim for Bonhoeffer linked to Luther in the same way that lots of the people that I think taught me how to think about the Bible would have made the same claim to be in continuity with Luther on Sola Scriptura, the centrality of the Bible, but not necessarily thinking about in what way uh, does that centrality get fleshed out. Wow. Does that, uh, does it change at all over his life? I mean, as you said, it's like a, he's 19 years old at this point. Um, so he has quite a bit of life left to live and experiences to, to be had. Does his approach to scripture change at all? It does. Um, I, I don't think anything in the big picture sense does in this relationship of scripture and, and revelation or um, theology and history or spirit and interpreter. I think what happens, and I think the, the phrase that I use to try to get after this is something like texturing, I think is the word that I use. Mm -hmm. I think by 1935 in particular, which is when I kind of come back around in chapter four of the book to like the next stage when Bonhoeffer's doing something reflective, self-consciously reflective on hermeneutics, um, is the space where I, I've noticed a significant amount more of the the stuff of the biblical text, the particularity of the biblical text, the materiality of the biblical text kind of having its sway. So I think in the early stage by 1925, there's, there are these broad conceptualities. They're indebted to a host of people. Um, some of which is that Berlin school kind of thinking, some of which is Luther, some of which is Bart. I think a lot of folks are actually involved. I think Zayberg is significantly involved. Um, I think all of those folks have something to say about what's going on there. And it's all big picture in some mm. respects. There are details here and there. He drops a couple of things in the footnotes, gives a couple of examples, but it's really lacking in sort of texture, specificity. Uh, the, the process of um, being a lecturer, the process of being a pastor, the process of being a seminary uh, director, these things and the events from 1933 on uh, color the way that this texture starts to take shape um, eventuating in, in my mind in sort of the not fall the period and the way in which he engages the scripture there. So I think that there is development. It's not these big picture concepts. It's more the small, the, yeah. the nuancing of them. There are some theological things. I think that um, his, his Christological reflection continues to take shape. And I think that that impacts uh, the way that he thinks about and frames some of this stuff, but it's, it's pretty stable. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh you mentioned, obviously, he's, he becomes a professor at the University of Berlin, um, and he starts lecturing. Uh, lectures eventually become creation and fall. He writes this uh, theological commentary on Genesis 1 through 3. Um, that's, you, you have a chapter that kind of covers that, some of the key moves that he makes in his interpretation. I'm wondering if you could provide, what, what are some of the techniques that he uses during creation and fall, and, and what are some examples of those, I guess? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things to say, uh, particularly about uh, his stint at Berlin, 
as this sort of unsalaried lecturer, which is a very precarious place to be, you know, on your way to hopefully one day getting a, a sort of real job um, <laughs> is, which is it's just funny because of how, how much some of us would want even just that unsalaried lecture position at this stage of our, our development. But um, he has it and he is in the context of this lecture hall and is, is basically to my mind, he's just, pre he's preaching. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the kinds of stuff that he's doing with this biblical text uh, is, is all very interesting to track. But the first thing I think that needs to be said is the text of Genesis is setting the pace. Uh, this is the hermeneutical circle on this is obviously very complicated. The sort of theological reflection that leads to the text of Genesis and the Genesis text that leads back out, if one could frame it that way to the theological reflection. None of this is straightforwardly going one direction or another, but um, as it's structured in the lectures, as it's structured in the printed volume uh, that he, he, you know, he publishes, um, this is a text that is massively responsive to what's given in the biblical text. There's a materiality to the text that actually is demands a kind of responsiveness. Um, so Bonhoeffer is at every turn starting by quoting the biblical text and then developing his thinking. Uh, he does do some creative sort of work with uh, the text as it's received. He engages with a couple of different German editions. Uh, so he's not just wedded. He's aware of the textual critical issues in some instances. He doesn't draw a lot of attention. The book is, doesn't have many footnotes. Uh, it's really not his interest to be doing acad academic sort of scholarly stuff in that sense. He is trying to just develop um, the sort of off the page into the life of the hearer, uh, or at least the, the lecture hall, the group. It's, it's less individual than the hearer. Um, but he's, he's engaging with, with the biblical text. Uh, and doing so critically, he's engaging with his translators, the sort of German people he's, he's reading, Luther Couch, doing that critically. Uh, and he's doing all sorts of creative things in the process to, to blend different people's voices together. So he draws on Michelangelo at one point. He's drawing on Feuerbach at one point. He's, he's drawing on Darwin uh, uncritically in some respects. He just sort of assimilates uh, aspects of what Darwin has to say without problems. Because um, again, that's a sort of given in his own intellectual culture and his development educationally. Um, in all of this, he is a very creative agent. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one of the things that I'm trying to draw the entire way through the book is that Bonhoeffer is a reader of these texts. He's an interpreter. That's the thing that I'm trying to put forward the whole way through uh, that Bonhoeffer recognizes a certain kind of agency in this. There's an interpreter doing certain work. So he's the one, he's the one actually organizing it. He's the one drawing out certain kinds of things over against other kinds of things. Uh, he's the one drawing in Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel and being very creative about the way that he links that to resurrection in Ephesians 5. And all of that is there in Genesis chapter 2 somehow, mm -hmm. uh, which is at the level of kind of typical exegesis of Genesis. Um, people would be ruling all of that stuff out of court. But for Bonhoeffer, it's all relevant by virtue of all being helpful to sort of get after the subject matter, get after the thing that, that the, the text is about, which is God in relationship to human beings, God in relationship to his world, uh, all of the sort of theological import that he's trying to draw out. So there, there are those kind of broader things. Um, if, if I remember, you, I think you drew attention, thankfully, to the page on which some of this is found. Um, so I can glance at a couple of these more specific things. So I, you know, I know, yes, at page 71, I know that he conflates the time of the text and the time of his hearers. Uh, which is an interesting thing to say, we are directed toward the ground at this point or the earth. Uh, and you're, you're a, as a participant in the lecture hall or a reader of his text now, uh, Bonhoeffer is taking you sort of around the shoulder, putting his arm around you and saying, we're going into this thing together. It's a very um, engaging way of sort of pulling people into the subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, deals in contrast, this is a very regular component of Bonhoeffer's way of interpreting text. He develops a, an opinion or a, an opposite way of thinking and walks down that road a little while. And then he stops you and brings you along on his path so that he yeah. can make it even the, the contrast really sharp. Uh, paraphrases all the time in the conversation between God and Adam about hiding. There's an extended dialogue that you're never going to find in the text of Genesis, but it's sort of like he's drawing out the potential, the dramatic potential in this episode 
uh, which is something that Bonhoeffer is doing all the time. Uh, he's a very creative thinker. And so he's dramatic and he's, I think he's a bit full of himself. Uh, and as a result, he can kind of take over and sort of imagine his way into something in a way that it really draws out a lot of interesting connections. Um, he underlines things with Sperzots or Sperzots, you know, this German uh, way of italicizing what we would just do italicizing, but they're going to spread out the letters uh, in order to draw attention to something. And that matters for being able to read carefully what he's after. He does that mm -hmm. in several instances. Um, all of these things, again, are just ways in which Bonhoeffer is, is showing forth his own creative engagement with the biblical text, taking it very seriously, allowing it to set the table uh, but it's a table in which he's going to sit down and eat. And so it's going to be very, it's Bonhoeffer's going to be there and he's mm -hmm. going to be there when all of his personality, all of his interests, all of his gifts, all of his questions, uh, they're all going to be to the fore. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. You, that, uh, that section in creation and fall, you, you put it in one of the footnotes there. The first time I read it, that was like the first real indication that I have that had that like, whoa, Bonhoeffer reads this way differently, like comes to the Bible with completely different presuppositions than most of the people who've taught me how to read the Bible, most people who I know read the Bible. Um, and that's that footnote where he's talking about um, creation, obviously. And he's like, um, obviously the world was not created in this way. So clearly the author of this text is speaking in a very human way. Mm -hmm. like all almost every word of those couple sentences was like whoa this like when I, when I think about those similarities and the differences it's like you almost have to just throw that those two sentences up and be like look that's the difference that he can say that in like not in the middle of a university lecture not bad an eye and keep going and mm -hmm. no one you know <laughs> I don't think anyone's raising their hands saying what are you what do you mean right. in a, in a speaking in a human way? And mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was really telling. It, it kind of blew my mind and then really that helped reorient me. It's sort of like, oh, maybe I have no idea how this guy reads the Bible. That was like, sure. obviously, as I first started this podcast and was starting to really read them. Um, yeah, it, it still sticks in my mind as like, oh, wow. Um, yeah, as yeah. How, how different the contexts are. Um, yeah, that's really, I think that's a helpful uh, example to draw to draw on because it does it connects back directly to that 1925 essay in fact mm -hmm. and the 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 work that he's doing is to try to develop a way of thinking of pneumatology that isn't competitive with human um, work with right. either the interpreter or the writer and so the ability to say that that's a completely human thing uh, a perspective that makes sense in the ancient world and doesn't at this stage is a way of just drawing out the fact that as, as the sort of redactor, the compiler, the person who put this pen to page, et cetera, et cetera, in all of the sure. sort of redaction critical and text critical form critical ways that, that Bonhoeffer takes for granted, in all of that, there the spirit's agency is, isn't sort of like a secondary cause that's making all of that happen as much as sort of the actual cause that makes for the human act itself. So that's, it's all very much in that 1925 essay, the way that he's framing what inspiration could be. Mm -hmm. That's great. So he uh, moves from there to become a, a pastor of a congregation in London. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, I guess, you know, he was in this academic setting, as you, as you said, he basically preaches there. Um, but then he like really, really preaches when he goes to London, he has a, a congregation, lay people in front of him. Um, so as he's, we have, you know, documents of his, of his uh, sermons, what sort of changes or how does he uh, change his interpretation or his exposition in a way that can reach lay people? What, what differences do we see from there, from the academy to the congregation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in some ways, as you've noted, connecting it back to the, the comment I made about the preaching in the context of the university, almost nothing changes. Yeah. Um, he is doing virtually the exact same thing uh, because when one is engaging with scripture, one is basically always preaching because interpretation is for the benefit of other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the two sermons that I look at, at least in the context of the book, uh, the one on Reformation Sunday on 1 Corinthians 13, 
uh, and then one on Jeremiah, which is just a super interesting text. Um, I think in some ways what changes or what the, at least con- the conditions make for a slightly different engagement would be that he's, he might be using a lectionary. My sense is he probably is. We don't know. Uh, at least I'd never found anything to indicate that he definitely was. Uh, but if he is, then the texts are given to him, uh, which does matter. Um, in the context of the Jeremiah one, I forget the particulars of the setting uh, in all of its detail in terms of the chronology and whatever, but he's at a very particularly complicated moment vis-a-vis the Confessing Church and the Kirchenkampf. And so as a result, uh, he's trying to figure out, like, you know, I think he's choosing the text in Jeremiah to work out some of the difficulty and to try to, to wed his hearers to the situation as it's unfolding in Germany and try to get, engage them more fully in it. Um, that is again, the same kind of act, but I think he's, he's given a text maybe by the lectionary, maybe not, maybe he's choosing this text. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but he's, he's trying this, he's doing the same kinds of stuff. He actually, in that one, just, uh, just for the sake of, I mean, this wouldn't be different than in the university or at Finkenbalda, but he just, he exploits ambiguity in ways that is, are just really striking. Uh, so in the Hebrew text, uh, the verb that Jeremiah that is used in this text in Jeremiah is very ambiguous. Luther leaves it sort of ambiguous, and Bonhoeffer loves that ambiguity and just strikes on it uh, and pulls out all sorts of interesting stuff to kind of characterize God's action. Uh, that just is is very interesting. I, I loved reading that sermon for that reason. Um, the so yeah, I, I would say that there's not actually that much that takes shape differently. The Reformation sermon similarly, he's just very attentive. To the biblical text in the in the, the Reformation Day sermon, the text sort of shapes his sermon in ways that are slightly different than other contexts. He's normally not as constrained by the way that the text itself forms kind of the outline of his sermon and that one it does. Um, but he's doing the same kind of stuff. He's very involved, very engaged, very creative. Um, you know, some, some people will say things like uh, Bonhoeffer doesn't read the Bible or the, we don't read the Bible, the Bible reads us kind of quip. Um, and I get it. And I, th- I think I understand there's some sympathy I have uh, with even saying that Bonhoeffer thought that kind of thing on occasion or would express something similar to it. Um, I think it, it kind of has the potential of erasing how creative and engaged of a reader um, he was, how actively engaged he is. So that even that first Corinthians 13 sermon on Reformation Day is a, a call for kind of re-inscribing Luther all over the place in their way of thinking about Protestantism. I mean, it's just, it's an absolutely striking text. Uh, and you, you wouldn't think, I mean, in some ways you could imagine how faith, at least in Paul's triad of faith, hope, and love could find itself on a Reformation day, but all of the elements of that uh, are really creatively worked. He rearranges the text in, in various ways to make his point. It's, it's striking. Mm. It's very creative. Yeah. That's great. Uh, He's in this sort of um, chaotic time in his life uh, with Confessing Church and in the German church. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, what, what's his approach on contemporizing texts? So he's preaching. How, do, how does he take this text from, you know, thousands of years ago and just apply it to today? And what are the dangers there? You have this, this brilliant section on autonomy. I, the, I wrote my master's thesis on Bonhoeffer's understanding of autonomy, and it's kind mm-hmm. of like, I don't know, the lens by which I see Bonhoeffer. So like mm-hmm. when, I, when I came across it, I was like, oh, this is so good. I love it. Um, so I'm wondering, yeah, how does he go about contemporizing text? What's his, what are his thoughts on it? And then um, what are sort of the dangers with autonomy? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, contemporary, the contemporizing thing um, mm-hmm. It definitely plays in in London. So uh, that's a, it's an interesting way, in fact, to frame it, to ask the contemporaries in question uh, sort of in respect to the preaching in London versus sort of talking about contemporizing when he gets to Finkenwalde, because that's where the, the lecture itself happens is in 35 in Finkenwalde. Um, I, I think what's, what's interesting is, and I, and I do this kind of thing, I think in an effort to sort of draw out the continuity and the discontinuity between that decade, uh, is that the 25 piece, the paper as a student, is actually mirrored in lots of really significant ways by 35 in just the rhetorical strategy. Bonhoeffer's regularly finding a negative foil from which to set his, his sort of thing apart. Um, the contemporizing thing he's ascribing in particular, the language is handed to him as a lecture topic in 1935. 
He says, this is the kind of thing that the German Christians are doing. Uh, and so how can he articulate the bad form of it as the German Christians are doing it? And then how can he articulate the positive form of it as he's hoping to do? And then what are the kind of methodological implications of thinking about these things this way? Um, and his negative form, the bad form, the German Christians are doing is sort of leaving the Bible back there, uh, assuming there's something timeless that needs to be able to be pulled forward into the present day context. And the only way that one could really determine what that thing is, is if you already kind of know what it is. And it's on the basis of our own time, our own period of reflection, our own enlightened view that can say what kind of is or isn't good or bad about what the Bible has to say to us. Um, that move he thinks is actually linked to this autonomy business that you're describing. The negative form of contemporizing has some kind of, whether in reason, in the national consciousness, in some kind of enlightened uh, uh, way of thinking about whatever the topic is, that there's some point from which one can assess. Uh, and he thinks that's a total impossibility. Um, and that's never something that a human being gets to do. Um, and so the alternative form of contemporizing is actually sort of simply is to let the Bible be the Bible and to do the work of actually reading it well and doing the work of reading it as you read it, as you are. So as Bonhoeffer is, and as Bonhoeffer reads, and as Bonhoeffer preaches, and as Bonhoeffer instructs, uh, the contemporizing is the, the fact that the biblical text, as given by God, as the thing that we kind of grapple with, the thing we live with, the centrality that it takes in the context of God's revelation of himself, is that we kind of attend as carefully as possible to the particularities of that. Mm -hmm. And we always allow that text to be the point. It's not what in our context can we use to discern where the point of good, bad is in the Bible, but it's from the Bible's perspective that we discern what the good, bad is in us, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. Not as a personal sin kind of issue, but more like a judgment over against our own ways of reasoning, our own ways of approaching questions, life itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so in some ways, his, his preaching evidences all of this uh, because he's always engaged with the subject matter of the text. This is the big word in Bonhoeffer's way of thinking is the Zaka, the subject matter, the essential content, there are lots of ways of trying to render this word in his texts. Um, but he's after this, what promotes Christ? What's the singularity that is the, the sort of witness to Christ that we find in the, in the biblical text? This is both an Old Testament and New Testament reality because both converge on the Gospels. The Gospels are the center point of the biblical text because the Old Testament points forward and the New Testament talks of fulfillment. And in each case, they're both folding back into the middle where the Gospels are located. And so it's always pointing to Jesus. Um, all of the witnesses are pointing to Jesus. And that's Jesus construed, not overtly Trinitarianly, this is not a, a register, an idiom that Bonhoeffer works in, but in terms of his way of framing a lot of things, it's always going to be spirit and word kind of together. So this is a Christologically inflected pneumatological interpretation by 1935. That's a significant difference. Christology plays a much great, greater role. And that's in part because Christ is more the focus in some respects by 1935 in light of what's gone on in his life, but also he's just gotten a lot better at dealing with the variety of texts that one finds in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and much more open to seeing all of them as discrete witnesses to what Jesus is up to. Um, so the contemporizing act is attention to the biblical text, careful attention to the biblical text to discern what promotes Christ. Uh, and the autonomy is actually only a negative way that he frames it for the German Christians. What he ends up positively talking about for the for the sort of good guys, which of course he's one of them, uh, which is a bit problematic in the text. Although there is an interesting point, just to, on the, as an aside, uh, Bonhoeffer at one point in the in the address to this group of pastors he's talking to actually qualifies or calls into question not only the German Christians contemporizing, but his own contemporizing. Uh, because it's essential to recognize that in neither case is it, the, is it the case that a person ever has sort of a totalizing picture of any of this, because one is always implicated by, situated by, contextualized by Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the very way that he develops this in the Christology lectures, the Lagos, Connor Lagos sort of stuff, uh, it's that kind of thinking that is putting a question mark even over his own process. And I think that's really important, especially as he continues to develop the freedom is the word he uses to describe the sort of witness of the preacher. Yeah. The, the freedom is qualified 
because it's always about witnessing to Jesus. It's always about witnessing elsewhere. There's an objective reality that always stands over against. So anyway, the development of the freedoms are the freedom to choose a text. The, pa the pastor gets to kind of help the congregation think through things. So it's where those, those issues of how Reformation Day looked in London to his two congregations, what it looked like to help them connect to the broader church struggle as it was developing in Germany. It's the pastor's responsibility. It's the pastor's witness to actually take those worldly day in and day out realities and bring them to the biblical text in order to allow the subject matter of the biblical text to interrogate, to question, to put those things into the right perspective and to see them as they relate to Jesus, to the spirit, um, to what what faithful witness could look like. Um, so it's always there's a there is a way in which the Bible stands kind of uh, as a, a kind of cipher or sort of coded sort of way of, of connecting the dots between preacher Bible God mm -hmm. in the pulpit. And that nexus of kind of the preaching moment is the space where the most freedom is found to witness, which is all linked, obviously, to St. Coram Communio and all of the ways that one thinks about what is happening in the preaching act, what's happening in Jesus kind of in the world as the church and all of that good stuff. That's so great. Um, well, I'm, I've taken you over time already, so I'm going to, uh, we'll have two more quick ones for you. Um, I guess you, I mean, as I said, your book is great. You, you work so intensely on Bonhoeffer's understanding of interpretation and how that all plays out. Um, I'm wondering after working so intensely on someone else's interpretation of scripture, how has that affected your own or, or has it? Yes. It's, that's a tricky thing for me to answer in part because, because interpretation is for the benefit of others, which is the way that I kind of frame it regularly in the book. And I think it's a helpful thing for myself and I'm not currently pastoring. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, in some ways um, I don't have a venue in which to interpret scripture. Um, so one could rightly say, well, you can read scripture on your own. And of course that's, that's certainly possible. Um, I find that the reading or the interpreting of scripture in the context of the church is meant in a one directional relationship to personal Bible reading. So mm -hmm. church Bible reading sort of dictates and um, contextualizes, situates personal Bible reading. Um, and so my own lack of space, uh, academic space or uh, pastoral church space within which to do interpretation has made it a lot harder for me to figure out how I would do it. I, I know that it wouldn't be like I did it before, Yeah. Right. Um, but I haven't actually figured out how I would do it now because there's really no place in which to do it, uh, which is probably a bit of a cop-out, but it's just the facts on the ground. I just yeah. don't have that many spaces. But I did say mm -hmm. in the acknowledgments of the book that um, to my kids that I would love to be able as a space my family's life to figure out how to read and interpret and read the Bible with and for them. Uh, so that, that we're exploring, I, I have difficulty in some respects. Uh, my kids are eight, six, and two, uh, trying to figure out what does it look like for us um, in correlation to our church life to sort of read the scriptures together uh, at what point. It's almost like from my perspective, it's like handing kids a cell phone too early, handing kids the keys to a car too early. The Bible is a very complicated thing. Uh, and in light of some of what I've taken uh, from my engagement with Bonhoeffer, but also other people, other theological development, other ecclesial development, a sort of, uh, I think, reticence um, to, to kind of move too quickly to personal Bible reading as a way of framing one's relationship to the Bible. Uh, so I, I haven't yet found ways to help my kids figure out what that all means for us, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on. Eventually, maybe there'll be something to come from it. Well, if you figure it out, shoot me an email because uh, <laughs> i got a couple four-year-olds that could use some help too. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So last question. Uh, it's a bit of a fun one. Uh, it's really just a way for me to get some book recommendations. Um, little game of desert island. So the idea is you're trapped on a desert island and you can take one book by Bonhoeffer. So a primary source and one book about Bonhoeffer. Any secondary source could be uh, a biography or it could be a theology book or a book like your own. Um, yeah, but which two books would you take and why? Am I alone on yeah. this desert island? Yeah. I am alone. alone. See, because immediately I think that being on a, and I know that this is just a cute way of framing the book recommendations thing, so that's fine. But <laughs> Bonhoeffer's theology is basically useless if I'm alone 
because it all is about sociality. Um, So I have like, it would be no good in some respects. So I was trying to figure out like what what, would Bonhoeffer even be a good companion on a desert island? And I think the answer is no. Um, He wouldn't be maybe St. John of the cross, maybe somebody who could, who could help me uh, figure out some things, but if I have to, for the sake of the recommendations, make some recommendations, I will. Um, and I think the first way I, I was torn because I think letters and papers would be really would be really pertinent to mm-hmm. being alone. Like I actually read them in the early stages of the pandemic when isolated, and it was an interesting way to sort of try a little bit on the idea that one's imprisoned, um, uh, but obviously with lots of qualifications. Um, and then I was thinking about act and being because I find it so incomprehensible that maybe if I'm by myself for a really long time, I could like try to actually understand something in it. Yeah. Uh, but I think I would probably just in a in a rash moment rip the Christology lectures out of Volume Twelve uh, and just take those lectures. Um, I think in part because the dispossession that he's talking about um, in his way of talking about Christology as a way unto a kind of establishment of creaturely agency, I find endlessly fertile, Mm -hmm. um, the ability to, to try to inhabit one's creaturely limitation, uh, as the reality of Jesus, um, of Nazareth, the word, I, I find all of the kind of work done there, uh, hugely fertile. So I think that that's what I would, I would probably want to stick with, um, as to a secondary source, I, I assume I'm going to end up on a desert island in a way that I'm kind of unprepared for. So it's going to be the one that's in my backpack, which happens to be Jens Zimmermann's Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Christian Humanism out by OUP in the last couple of years. I've read it one time in kind of a quick fashion. And so I think I'd like to spend some more time with it. Again, the upshot of it is hugely political and ethical and Mm -hmm. everything else one would expect. So I'd have nowhere really to go with any of it, but it would be a really (laughs) fun book. Uh, I really like the idea of, of Christian humanism. I think there's a lot going for uh, what Jens is, is trying to do in the book. So I think that would be a fun one to have with me. Awesome. Well, those are some great answers. Yeah. I, uh, I, I always go back and forth between letters and papers and uh, life together as, as my choices. There's sure. a chapter in life together on the day alone. <laughs> Might be a saving grace there. That's true. That could be helpful. <laughs> the awesome. many, many, many days alone. Yeah, that for sure. Done. Well, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for doing this. I I loved your book. And um, the book is entitled Bonhoeffer as Biblical Interpreter, Reading Scripture in 1930s Germany. Um, It's from Bloomsbury. Find it on Amazon or their website. Uh, Yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much for doing this. And yeah, I've learned a ton. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate the time to talk. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app and it will help others find the show. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Pod. We have quite a few supporter benefits available on there. Uh, so please check those out. And speaking of the Patreon, special thank you to the supporters of this show, Soren Jensen, Andrew Clark Howard, Hank Janelle, Arthur Houts, Greg Harbaugh, Chris Button, Chris Sunby, Wilco Ollies, John Cromarty, Chris Baker, Diego Reeve, and of course, as always, a special thank you to you, the listener. I love doing these and I look forward to them each month. So thank you so much for listening.